This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now. I'm Raghu Marcus. Today's podcast is uh, around a visit that Ramdas had with uh, a woman named Antoinette or Tony Lilly, who was the wife of a very famous uh, scientist. John Lilly, Ramdas was friendly with. John died in the, I think, around 2001. And he did a lot of work around psychedelics. He did a lot of uh, consciousness. He was a researcher on the nature of consciousness. And uh, he worked a lot with isolation tanks. And uh, But he was most well known for dolphin uh, communications. And uh, did a lot of work with, uh, the rela- you know, relating... Uh, dolphins and people and uh, in this particular um, talk that Ram actually it's an interview that John's wife Tony did with Ram Das uh, must have been in the 90s at some point three four five something like that uh, it's pretty fascinating uh, I loved it uh, I've always who amongst us has not wanted to swim with the dolphins I have always wanted to do that, and of course, uh, and uh, so Ramdas did, and um, related his experiences around it, um, and it was uh, pretty fascinating. And then they discussed all sorts of other things, always coming back to that relationship um, uh, to the dolphins, um, and basically, Ramdas was put into a very intuitive heart space by the dolphins as soon as he got into the pool. I mean, pretty amazing story. I've heard this from other people as well. There's a, there's a way in which you are put completely out of your um, rational mind and, and into your core being uh, by virtue of being uh, with these uh, animals. Um, one thing struck me uh, that uh, I'd like to relate or i think it's the core of uh i mean it's interesting also uh, just before i get into that she said that um at some point some people get in the pool with these dolphins and they immediately throw you out like if you're really caught in your mind and your ego or fear or whatever it might be they immediately push you out uh, I mean, Ramdas, and this came up because Ramdas was talking about after about 45 minutes or whatever, he got uh, quite tired and, but he didn't want to leave the pool, but they pushed him right out. They, there's an intuitive, um, wisdom that exists in these, uh, highly evolved animals. So I love that. But, um, uh, he, I mean, he talked about them as they were mirroring uh, a, a non-judgmental awareness, and he compared that to being with Maharaji. And uh, he said uh, something like, being with Maharaji felt like you were being with somebody who was human, but not human, like like a wild animal. And that removed you from the, the conceptual conspiracy that we all engage with each other, with our minds. Uh, that was not existent, of course, with Maharaji. And I remember first meeting him, and aside from the feeling of home and other things that I've talked about in previous uh, podcasts, 
there was i i kind of describe i like this description better i i describe it as in technology terms maharaji was it was like a computer that just did the right thing. He wasn't somebody thinking, well, I'm going to tell him this, that, or the other. I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to do anything. It just happened. And you knew it was just happening from a completely different place than I had ever experienced before. And and I like this conceptual conspiracy because that is what I had been used to my entire life. Uh, obviously you you know there are moments that you get into of unconditional love with uh, i mean best example of course is with one's mother early in childhood and you you hopefully have that experience but to have that experience with a complete stranger in, in this uh in a completely different culture was uh, extraordinary and and you know ramdas describes being with these with these animals uh, that had this intuitive uh, wisdom they knew what he was going through and and even thinking and and you know just little things where he he thought i don't want to hold on to their fin because that might hurt them and then they nudge him into doing that you know all kinds of incredible stuff um and he, you know, it, it was a training ground to let go of uh, what he called dumb thinking and and get And what a great experience. I mean, uh, again, you know, of course, many of us have wanted to do this. Boy, I'd love to do it, to do it as well. Um, um, I should be happy with uh, the experience, of course, of being in India with a being who who just displayed that 24 seven, just being with him, that intuitive uh, wisdom. And you, you know, you were connected to that. I mean, he just uh, mirrored that. Um, well, you read about it in the book, in books. I mean, I remember like I, I read um, before going to India, a great book, by the way, um, is, um, uh, Yogananda's book. Um, oh God, I can't remember the name all of a sudden. There you go. I'll remember it. Um, you know, famous book. But in that book, uh, the he talks about uh, you know various uh, gurus that he was with and his uh, uh, experiences with them, and and you know some of the you know miraculous experience. I remember reading about one thing or another in this book, and. Uh, the next thing I knew, I was living autobiography, autobiography of a yogi. I can't speak this morning, folks. I don't know quite what deal is. Um, <laughs> anyhow, it was like living. I remember thinking to myself, Jesus, like living this, this, this experience that was in this book. And, um, it it just uh, the reflection that you receive uh, being with a being like this uh, gives you a rudder for what's possible, and uh, and certainly we were quite fortunate to, to swim in that ocean. Oh, I should mention that um, that book, uh, which I couldn't remember the name of. Autobiography of a Yogi, which is a tremendous book, still quite absolutely relevant these days. 
And uh, it brings me to the thought that if you go to ramdas.org, we just now have a new uh, blog um, tab called Books to Hang Out With, which we picked up from Be Here Now. Ramdas at the end of Be Here Now had put in a few pages of books uh, he recommended. And uh, s- some of them I thought, wow, these aren't even going to be in print. But we we found out that a lot of them are. And every week we're recommending uh, one book or another. I think uh, uh, there's some wonderful recommendations that Ramdas has given through Be Here Now. Now we're kind of updating it with uh, newer newer books. And, uh, and when you do go over there and uh, purchase that book, uh, it's another way to support the foundation. Because uh, we're an affiliate with Amazon and uh, we get a few shekels from every purchase and whatever you purchase, doesn't matter if it's books. So I just wanted to throw that plug in there. We don't normally do that, but we uh, we would love to uh, to have you check that out. Um, and since I'm plugging right now, I want to plug. Uh, we're, we're doing a stream of the May retreat with Ramdas and Roshi Joan Halifax. So you'll find that on the site too. join that. That ought to be. It's around love and awareness. That ought to be pretty uh, interesting. Um, so here we are, Ramdas, here and now, and dolphins. Hello, everyone. My name is Antoinette Lilly, and I'm here with a man who has always made me feel very full. Not only full as a woman, but full as a human being. And he's a marvelous storyteller, and I hope I can get him to tell you a story about swimming with our dolphins, Joe and Rosalie. I'd like you to meet Ramdas and Richard Alpert, whichever one he wishes to be today. Dick, Ramdam, whatever is comfortable. Hi. <laughs> Hello, love. How are you? I'm very nice. Yeah, it's good to be with you. It's good to be here with you. You were swimming with Joe and Rosalie recently. Absolutely. Absolutely. At your invitation. Yeah. Can I tell a story? Yes. I'm uh, well, I got invited to swim with the dolphins in a, these tanks at Redwood City. Can I look at them, or should I look at you? <laughs> well, I'd rather you look at me. Okay. Well, you know the story, though, but I'll tell you. Because it's a different story if I tell you and you know. All right. You want to okay? look at the cameras? So, I'll make believe you don't know. Okay. okay. And um, so, uh, Tony and uh, John Lilly asked me if I'd like to swim with the dolphins, and I said I'd love to. So I found myself in this gray day in a bathing suit, not in a wetsuit, at this tank in Redwood City. And I got into the holding platform, and then I got into the water, so I was sort of treading water. At that moment, I thought, what the hell am I doing here? Like, you know, you're supposed to want to swim with the dolphins, and I want to swim with the dolphins. And I think, oh, my God, you know, I'm a 50-year-old man. It's cold. What do you do with dolphins? And I'm trying desperately to remember all the stories about what you're supposed to do with dolphins first thing that happened was that Joe and Rosie made two very, Rosalie made two very close passes by me. And I was aware they were very powerful and very big. And that kind of scared me. And I thought, I'm really out of my territory. But everybody was watching around the tank to see what Ram Dass was going to do with the dolphins. So I knew whatever I did, I had a smile. Okay. <laughs> so then uh, I was trying to think of what to do. And Joe came over and he opened his mouth and he put it over my wrist. And every, like, Jaws fantasy I ever had, you know, when I saw this mouth closing around my wrist went by. And he took me very gently and he pulled me out into the middle of the tank and let me go. 
and it blew my mind. I mean, he just took me right out of my mind because nothing I knew with tails in the water did things like that, you know, and my model of, of what I expected wasn't that. So I went into a whole intuitive space in myself and my heart started open. The minute that happened and I went out of my, my intellect, Rosie, Rosalie was right here and I really wanted to touch her but I was afraid she'd be bothered, you know. So I very gingerly did it, and she stayed right there, and I started to pat her, and she felt so good, you know, you know, how good she felt. And I realized she knows, I know, she knows, like we're both right here together, you know, and, the, and my heart opened further. And then right after that, Rosie was up against me, and I was holding her, and she was holding me, and I was kissing her and saying, oh, Rosie, I love you so much. I mean, my heart just went out. And then she, I began to think, are you allowed to do this with a dog? <laughs> and, and then Rosie went around and she was right here. And what I wanted to do was swim with her. Now, I've never seen anybody swim with them. I mean, I probably had, but I couldn't. So I wanted to take her back fin and I thought I might break it. So I very gingerly took it and she swam down and I slipped off and came up and she came up and then I went down and I slipped off and she came back. Three or four times I thought, this isn't going to work, I'll put my hand around her. But she's going to be bugged if I do this, you know, cause I'm coming on. You know. My mind again. So we started and she started to get very active and I thought it's bugging her and I let go and she immediately came back in under my arm. In other words, she was just training me to let go of all my dumb thinking and just trust and go with it. Finally, I just grabbed her and we started to swim wildly around the tank. And it was better than any fantasy I'd ever had about what it would be like. And at a certain point, I thought, well, you know, I really got to breathe. And I don't think she knows that. Now, the minute I felt the need to breathe, she was up at the surface for the breath. And then we went down again. And every time I felt the need to breathe, she came up. And at one point, she came up and somebody was taking a picture. And I got into hamming it up and I forgot to take a breath. And I went back down again. And right after that, she came up again for me to get a breath. And after about 40 minutes, I was really tired. And I felt this wave of fatigue. She came up, shook me off, went around the tank. Joe and she came over and pushed their noses against my belly and pushed me over to the holding platform and out of the tank. And they wouldn't let me back in the whole day. And I just feel like they're my great teachers. They're like teachers of teaching me about my intuitive heart. So many people who swim with dolphins have um, experiences that somehow they get their humanness in perspective. You know, there's sort of a, a reflection of self yeah. that seems to happen. I felt a lot like I felt with my guru in India. Mm. I felt it was the mirroring, mirroring of non-judging awareness. Mm. You know, that they weren't, uh, they weren't seeing me as a fellow human being would see me. They were seeing me in a much more spacious way. They were seeing me like this, you know, mm -hmm. just like that. They also uh, seem to be able to psychically be absorb thoughts before yeah. you even think Yeah, that's them. what you feel like. You feel they're inside your head. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't think they're thinking about it. No. I think they are more responding to the fact that our thoughts are very subtle vibratory rates, too, right. that send like things like that. When we go into our mind, we change our vibratory rate. And uh, Children seem to react to dolphins in a very natural way. Yeah. And uh, we're thinking of having a community of dolphins and humans. 
and hopefully we can do that in Mexico. I'm looking forward to that very much. I can just imagine where mothers and their babies are right at the water's edge and the dolphins and the babies start to play together and the whole, mm -hmm. because the babies, because they don't have such a heavy conceptual overlay, are absolutely optimum ambassadors across species. I agree. Yeah, that's a nice one. We had some uh, young uh, children that were uh, swimming with our dolphins and the dolphins related to the children differently when the mothers were in the pool with them. Oh, that how? Well, they were uh, just a lot more cautious and a lot more um, quieter with them. As soon as the mothers left, they felt, it seemed That's that they felt free They were responding to, to the children's thing rather than right. a little of the Much fear more. or the tension of the parent. Right. So they seemed nice. to be responding to the tension of the parents. Yeah. And that, uh, again, made me realize how also to the honoring of the relation between mother and child, yes, right. which is a nice one too. Mm -hmm. I think they also feel differently about death somehow. Yeah, well I think they function in, uh, uh, in, uh, in their awareness not in time and space that way. Right. So the death and life, it's like one to me is life and death. It's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, they just see it as transformation of energy. I don't mean, I don't think they sit around thinking about it, but I mean, mm -hmm. I think they dwell in that part of consciousness. There was an orca recently, uh, a killer whale up in Canada. It'd been with the ocean area for about 14 years, mm -hmm. and they decided to let it go and get two younger orca. And before they let it go, the orca decided to die. Mm -hmm. They couldn't find any uh, physical reason for it to die. Yeah. And that made everyone think that they somehow knew what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. The decisions made by the humans somehow were absorbed by the, by the orca. It's a nice story. It yeah. feels very possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although I don't want to project in this whole intellectual overlay that they think, well, he's got, they're going to let me go, so I'll die. Mm -hmm. I don't feel it could be at that level at all. No. And I think it's just a much more, maybe my work is done type thing. Oh, not even a consciousness just a vibratory shift that... Wouldn't it be nice if we could die that way? And so many people never welcome it. We never think about welcoming death. We always think about holding it off or We resisting. see death as an enemy, yeah. Hmm. Because we identify with form and that form changes. And we're afraid of that. The minute we identify with that part of ourselves which doesn't change, then death is just part of the forms changing. Ah, life, you know, it's like when Ramana Maharshi was dying and they said, don't leave us, don't leave us. He said, don't be silly, where could I go? Uh. You know, because you're identified with that part of you. That's just, and that's why for people that want to awaken into that space, death is such a heavy drama. It's a beautiful melodrama to do it through because it's one that sucks you back into your separateness. Like, I'm dying. And to be with somebody who is dying, who's not caught in their own drama, is very special. That's why I love being with dying people. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross told a story of this very young boy, I think he was four, and he asked his mother to go home, he was dying, and he asked her to go home and take a shower because she looked very tired. And he died while she was gone. And uh, Elizabeth felt that she, the child wanted the freedom to die joyfully. Because yeah. he somehow was more connected to that than older people mm. seem to me. I can un well understand that if you're dying, you don't particularly want someone Around hanging over saying, please don't leave me. Who's caught in the drama. Who's yeah. caught in the drama. Right. So uh, 
like one of the things we've done is created a, a center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where people who want to die consciously can come. And where those of us that want to be with dying people to keep ourselves conscious can be. And so we take care of each other and everybody gets, gets a benefit from it because there are no professional dyers. But it's nice to put those two together. And it's a beautiful experience. Everybody grows from it. It's a... found was that um, that to the extent that I'm in a human body I have fear of death because I'm separate to the extent that I'm not I have no fear of death I used to go around saying I'm not afraid of death and I saw that isn't true but I am afraid and I'm not afraid both and it seems to me what we bring to another human being is our truth and I don't feel like I have to make believe I'm not afraid of death when I'm with somebody that's dying. I think that cuts them off from a part of their being. Just mm -hmm. to be with them the way they are is nice. Well, I've had quite a journey this last year because, of course, I found out that I had cancer and I went through every conceivable kind of um, kaleidoscope of feelings. I bet you did. That's a good one, isn't it? It really pushes all the buttons, it doesn't it? It pushed every single yeah. button imaginable. Yeah, I know. It's a good one. And in a sense, I've, I've, I'm thankful for it because I have um, lived more fully this last yeah. year. It's like Don Juan talks about living with death on your left shoulder yeah. and how it enriches the moment. Mm -hmm. and that's what the Easterners know because they always live their life in relation to their death, not in a morbid way, just in a very aware way of the preciousness of the moment. Because who knows when you're going to die? I mean, we both may die, you know, at the end of this moment together. Right. So life then can be uh, a preparation for a sort of graduation. Exactly. In fact, it's interesting because the Easterners, you're only graduating on one level. At another level, you're just going on. Yes. You know? But uh, the Easterners do see life as a preparation for how conscious you are at the moment of death. And since you don't know what moment it is, you might as well practice by being conscious now. This is Because this is it. We're dying, now there's a new moment. Now this one just died, now there's a new moment. One of these will drop our body. Ah, no body, we're still here. Rent the body. It's very far out when you realize you can blow your brains out and you're still here. <laughs> See, that's what people, because they, everybody got caught in the left brain, right brain, you know, that's where we really are. That's all nonsense, really. That's the form through which it manifests. But uh, the brains get eaten by worms and awareness is still there. I have this great uh, friend, Emmanuel, he doesn't have a body. He speaks for a woman named Pat Rodegast. I said to him, Emmanuel, what do I tell people about dying? He says, tell them it's absolutely safe. It's a delicious one. He said, it's like taking off a tight shoe. I mean, who could ask for a friend better than that, you know? A tight shoe. Oh. And you can feel how when you're crammed in any form, the form is only part of it. And actually, you're all of it. It's only your definition. When you identify with a form, you immediately define what you're not. Mm -hmm. And all of our needs of I want and I need and oh please and oh and all that, that's all part of still defining yourself as, as a have not. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a feeling, uh, almost a knowing, that dolphins have some kind of a head start on that. And the experience that I have with the blue whale that I wrote about was this very thing, a sort of a glimpse of a spiritual domain that I could only 
grasp just for a couple of seconds. Mm. But in that domain, there is nothing well, but that. Yeah, I understand. Uh, I think you will get that, though, if you spend long enough with um, a candle flame or a river or the stars or a deer or a cat. Uh, beings that are just part of the Tao, part of the way of things, without the self-consciousness that makes them um, kind of edgy, mm -hmm. like us humans. Mm -hmm. I get a sense of, it allows you to tune to that part of you that is, uh, that doesn't have definition. But on the spiritual level, yeah. uh, compared to the physical, could it be that because they've been here so much longer, they've had time on the physical level to work something out so that they are closer to them well see i don't know about the game closer and further away that's right. a funny game you mm -hmm. know and i don't know that like are we more than the mm -hmm. dolphins and mm -hmm. the dolphins more than us i'm not sure it's productive to figure that out mm -hmm. i just feel i get a great teaching from it and if i hope it's useful to them to be with us you know uh, for, for whatever they have to do in an evolutionary sense we're all in an evolutionary journey to decide who's where, I couldn't figure it out. You know, I don't know that I learn more about from them by thinking they're ahead of me mm -hmm. than to think that they are just doing their work and they are an instrument for me to do what I need to do. Well, maybe, maybe uh, this immense presence that I feel has not very much to do with ahead or be uh, behind, but it's sort of a vibratory difference. Yes. That I yeah. sense. And um, that vibration t somehow helps me get it to that. It heals you. It brings place. you to another plane yeah. of your own awareness. Yeah, I can hear that. It's like touching wisdom, mm. or touching truth, or touching beauty, or touching essence. Mm -hmm. As if they're not entrapping you in form. So you can become more vast in their presence. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's like being close to somebody, and yet they're not judging you. We're just, it's so rare for us to ever experience unconditional love from another human being. Because other human beings all want something. They identify with their wants. Mm -hmm. And you don't get a feeling from the dolphin that it wants that badly. You get a feeling it is. D is that true? or am I... I certainly get that, that feeling that they don't want. When, when they do uh, want you out of the water, they, uh, you know, there's, it's an unmistakable. <laughs> because yeah. they can be quite rough. The first time I swam with them, I also had the same feeling. Yeah. I had sort of a, um, a feeling, oh, here I am with the dolphins, but their power, yeah. their immense power. Yeah. But I that not... can, you know, that can be like Zen anger. Yeah. It can be not anger out of I want, right. but just anger out of the way of things, that it's appropriate to be fierce with you at that moment, mm -hmm. not out of they think I ought to be fierce with her, fierce, you know. Mm -hmm. And it also could be many other different things. It could yeah. be sexual. I think this yeah. raking is there. I think uh, we tend to really fall into the trap of anthropomorphizing, really, mm -hmm. in a very uh, we poignant way. Do else to come from? Poignant way. Yes, we do. <laughs> Aren't we human? We're not human? Well, we're also human. <laughs> we're also human. We're not exclusively human, no. Mm -hmm. No, and they're not exclusively dolphin. Mm -hmm. It's just like meeting another soul. Like, are you there? I'm there. Interesting life being a dolphin, isn't it? Well, you know what it's like being a human? <laughs> we'll trade you next time. <laughs> you know, it's so marvelous. I haven't seen you for a year. I know it. And uh, you're, you're different and yet the same. Mm. And here we are in the galaxy. <laughs> Extraordinary.
You know, this Hi. is one of the great women that I know in the world because she is. It's an interesting combination when you meet somebody like this that has um, all of the cultural, like the beauty and the intellect and the charisma, but also has a kind of wisdom that is like I don't know how to describe it. It's a wisdom that it's like many planes and. Uh, when I'm with her, I'm enriched. It's like we meet on many planes. She's a very beautiful woman. It's fun to meet her there. <laughs> Am I ruining <laughs> I, I love that. I absolutely love that. Well, you know I feel the same way about you. Mm. And I've already elaborated on that. But uh, I can also say that when I meet you, you fill my heart with joy. There's a joyousness that I'm able to feel. Now, I, I, I know I should take responsibility for my feelings, but I can't help but think that in your presence, I'm more capable of feeling certain dimensions. Well, see, I've got my guru in my left ear, <laughs> and he's full of cosmic giggle. Mm. He's always laughing at the whole thing. He's laughing at me, taking myself so seriously. He's laughing at you. He's <laughs> laughing at the whole thing. He thinks the whole thing's a big joke. Mm. And he loves it all. It's, the same, it's all perfect. Mm -hmm. And that giggle gets transmitted through me. And then you pick it up. I mean, it's, it's catchy. It's like Mayor Baba says, love is catchy. <laughs> really, it's catchy. It's, it's a resonance. It's a vibratory rate. Do you, you feel that you have access to his presence most of the time? Yeah, I would say I do. I'd say he's my friend, and we hang out together a lot. Yeah. And I say I'd, I'd say I think of him maybe thousands of times each day. Like I'd never take food without offering him some of it. I see him eat it. I'm just completely mad, you know. I mean, this is complete psychosis from me as a psychologist. You know, I've got an imaginary playmate. <laughs> Children do too. But he's he's. Uh, like he was, he's like the dolphins too. Mm -hmm. I mean, you felt like it was like a, he was human yet not human. It was like being with a wild animal. Like uh, it was like somebody out of conceptual conspiracy, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which we make believe to be somebody or other with each other. And there was a freshness about that that just caught me all the time. I had many men as my gurus, but. Uh, in the sense of, of um, uh, most of the time, uh, to acquire knowledge, I've not ever, um, except for you, <laughs> except for you, had a feeling that a man could teach me um, joy, because I somehow felt that that... It's interesting, you know, um, uh, a couple of things about that. One is that we always associated sexual uh, sex role with the women are intuitive and the men are head trippy, oh. sort of. And the, back at Harvard, we'd say strong people in think, women and weak people intuit, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And then it turned out that the intuitive mind was closer to what is than the thinking mind. I mean, the thinking mind's good to have as a servant, but and I can feel that my whole spiritual. Uh, work and all this stuff of working with consciousness is tuning me to that which you have more in your endocrine system more. I have to let go of a whole cultural model. Now part of it has to do with my bisexuality too. 
because that the soul is androgynous it doesn't have male or female oh. and it has all the qualities of both and it's every emotion it's all of it mm -hmm. you know and I think that it's funny because I always saw that as like a curse from a psychological dynamic point of view from a spiritual point of view it was merely what is it's the stuff I had to work with mm -hmm. and I can see that that allows these qualities to be in me uh, I'm just getting in touch with that just barely getting a glimmer of my androgynous self yeah because um, maybe because my age. the reason that you've had a, you wait so long to do that is because you're a beautiful woman and in the culture you are kept by everybody's mind and vision in your role as being part of it hmm. you know? well it's interesting that that as you uh, then finally you can start to escape and you can allow yourself to just be a being and be a beautiful woman instead of needing to identify with a role it's very hard for people to come on strong symbolically by having money or power or beauty to escape from their roles I feel very sorry oftentimes you know? but you know Richard I've not ever thought of myself as a beautiful woman yeah but others do see and you deal with their minds we're always living in the projections of other people's minds even though we're constantly saying but I'm no good <laughs> it's just our trip <laughs> but the world we uh, yeah. I think it's uh, I'm feeling more um, more of my maleness coming out as I have stopped judging myself so much for my androgyny I can feel a deep kind of uh, something Robert Bly was talking about I think in an article recently about the kind of deeper male sexuality and it's, it's very exciting for me at 51 years old you know we're the same age I, I find that at my age now, I look back at all the attachments that I've had that have been sometimes very painful, and if I can evolve to a place where uh, I can detach and just be in relationships, I think I will have done what I need to do. Well, when you're using relation, when you can see relationships as a vehicle to come into that space, mm -hmm. that's like the yoga of relationships, using relationship as a yoga. Most people have a relationship and they do it as a support system for other things they want to do. Or they want to stay in the relational aspect of it. They don't want to use it to go into a vehicle which transcends, transcends separateness so that it's one at play as two. Mm -hmm. which is that one where you're really not attached you come with a cup full you don't come out of need the relationship you're not identified with the needs even though the needs cause the meshing of the mm -hmm. thing well the needs in my generation an awful lot of women that I I've known intimately have been um, manipulated by what we thought we should how we should relate to the opposite side of course and um, your models are what create your hell right. You know. This famous, uh, very famous French courtesan said uh, that a woman from 20 to 30, only she only needed to be beautiful. From 30 to 40, she should really be great in the sack. And from 40 to 50, she had to be a great conversationalist. And from 50 on, all she needed was money. So you see how male-oriented uh, that, that all was. Is. Yeah, I know. What a and pathetic, poignant 
Well, you know, it, 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 it has been yeah, for many women. It sure it has been. This it last sure it has been. generation. Yeah. And I think women today are freer of that and are willing. I had a hard time all my life because I couldn't enter into the macho role. Hmm. And it was such a dominant theme, you know, how good you were and how hard and how, you know, tough and all hmm. these roles. And they never felt part of my being. And I always had to deal with that disparity that I didn't really want to hang out in a bar being that person. Mm -hmm. But I was supposed to, you know, and I tried to want to want it and it didn't work. It takes a long time to see that those models don't allow you the space to be what you are. That's a big one we're all learning. Then you see real beauty come out of a woman when she is just true to her being, not a model. The model keeps people away. We've certainly bought it, though. Haven't we? Haven't we? I have, anyway. We all do. Ways. In fact, if we didn't buy it, we wouldn't take human births. <laughs> it's built into the system. <laughs> There's no way mm. not to. Buddha had a great line. He said, uh, you, everybody's got the five hindrances. He said, you've got lust and greed. That's one of them. That's not even two. And hatred and ill will, agitation, sloth and torpor, and doubt. He's five. And... Uh, so when I think about it, I think, well, if I were setting up a community, who will I put in it? Well, I'll put in people with lust and greed, hatred, agitation, sloth, and doubt. And this is it, you know, and this is who we are because this is the kind of work we have to do. Mm -hmm. This is the beautiful, this is the attachments. And everybody's got them unless they just drop down and bless us or something. I mean, that's why we take human birth. Well, how do you suppose we can set up this community between uh, uh, dolphins and humans? I mean, what can we do as humans, uh, intelligent, fairly intelligent human beings, to sort of get some of the parameters um, so that interspecies communication can begin? Well, in talking to Emmanuel about that, my, mm -hmm. my spook friend, he, <laughs> he said that, um, that it would be good if we really try to listen to their language rather than try to impose our own. And I think for that, we have to work on ourselves very hard to keep getting rid of our conceptual structures. So my feeling is just hanging out without a particular goal-oriented thing for quite a while, just being there and going through all your trips and then just being there and going through another trip and then being there is the way in which we're going to receive the optimum message about how to proceed. I mean, I would trust the dolphins to guide me how to proceed as much as I would trust my own mind, you know, mm -hmm. as to what I think we should do. So I would just create a space where it feels comfortable and natural for both parties to be present and let it all evolve from that, that chemistry. Mm -hmm. Children, I think, uh, can help. Don't you, young, younger children yeah, and they, older people? Yeah, because they have so less conceptual have models. Well, we're hoping to put that together in Mexico. That would be a Will beautiful you come? thing. Sure, I'll come down. I'll come. Okay. After being with Joe and Rosalie, I'll, <laughs> I, I uh, sure would come. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've told that story and how many people yearn to make that connection. And I think that's part of a, a spiritual yearning in people. It's a yearning for consciousness. I don't think it's just a fun and games. I think mm -hmm. it's something deeper. It's an intuitive pull in people. What happened to me, I think, was an awareness of how lonely I really 
I really felt, not loneliness for other human beings, but lonely that somehow back, way back, I had made a distinction of separation. And that was somehow connected to this lure of the dolphins. Exactly. But that, that's the lure of all things in life. Because uh -huh. some way or way back, that's when you took birth and somehow you experience yourself as separate from the totality which sometimes by bizarre thought is called falling out of grace or original sin or whatever you want to call it but it's the nature of your birth that you were going to identify with your separateness and that makes you yearn to come back into the totality and it's like the orgasm it's like uh, scuba diving it's like surfing it's like hang gliding it's like cooking a bouillabaisse it's whatever it is that allows you to transcend and I think there is a sense that through the dolphins, there is a sense of their wisdom or their isness or their presence that gives you the feeling that you can come back into your natural state through. And in that way, I think they're very healing. And uh, it would just be interesting to have, say, uh, groups of uh, policy makers of some kind just hang out with dolphins and have their policy meetings with the, you know, with the dolphins present. I think that'll be fun to play too. Because I would imagine it would change people's way of looking at problem solving too. The environment that we hope to uh, create would be a living situation where you could just, as you said, hang out so that yeah. this, it would happen naturally. Yeah. Not structured so that yeah, you... Yeah, the fewer structures you have. Well, that determines the answer anyway, yeah. if you structure it to precisely. Then you get exactly what you thought you'd get. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, and you don't learn anything. <laughs> I really like to go in each situation as wide open as the, as the situation allows. I mean, there are certain limitations by money or time or opportunity or stuff like that. But why impose more of them by unnecessarily? Mm -hmm. I, always get, I used to get always caught in living out my thoughts of yesterday, of, you know, like you create a foundation and you have an idea and then somebody runs with it and pretty soon you're carrying this big thing around with you supporting <laughs> this whole idea you had so that you're well. not even interested in particularly anymore. <laughs> and I just kept dumping and dumping. I really understood the way my guru just kind of walked off into the woods and just kept walking away from everything. When he was there, he was really there, but he didn't allow it to grab like that. Well, I just want to swim with them and I do am, that, I and I'm, you know, running this foundation as chairperson, and well, I'm I think that honesty of I just want to swim with them, and I bet you do too, and come join me in this foundation, and let's create this beautiful space and see what comes out of it. I think in some way like that captures the touches people in a way. See, a lot of people feel they need to be doing something important, which mm -hmm. is uh, part of it, but I'm not sure that that's not a limiting condition. Mm. Well, I'm inviting you all to come and play with us in Mexico uh, in the future. That's quite an invitation, by the way, I'll tell you. <laughs> because I can't tell you how many people come up and say, do you think there's a chance I could do it? Yeah. And I think if you just create an opportunity for any human being that really wants to open themselves through this dialogue, knowing, as Tony told me when I danced with the dolphins, she says, they may throw you out immediately. You've got to be ready for it. So if your ego's brittle, watch it. But if you're ready to play, come on in and put some bread in, put some time in, come on down. <laughs> well, they're coming in all over the world. There are places like uh, Monkey Maya where they're coming in. They've been coming in for the last 10 years. So they are really trying to make contact. It's the, all the limitations seem to be on the human side, yeah. not the dolphin. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, we don't spend much time in our aquatic identities. Aquatic identities. You're going to go on sort of a retreat next year? Well, I'm just stopping what I'm doing. Stopping. Mexico might be the place. Well, I'm spending the winter in a farm in western Massachusetts working on a book and mm -hmm. taking care of a cow named Viola. <laughs> who is a pet. She's old and oh. I don't know, she takes walks with you and you feed her every day. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do that this winter and play my cello. And uh, I didn't know you played the cello. Yeah. And I play in quartets and stuff like that. Do you? Yeah. And there's probably, so many sides to you. Oh, infinite. Infinite. <laughs> infinite. <laughs> and that's going to go to May and then I'm going to do some uh, anti-nuclear stuff along the way and maybe get arrested if it's appropriate, if I can find a good place to get arrested. <laughs> and then uh, late in the summer I'm going to India because it's the 10th anniversary of when my guru left his body. Mm -hmm. And I thought it'd be fun to check in. And then I don't know, I started studying Aikido last summer. Oh. And I may go to Japan for a while to study Aikido. Because every time I would study Aikido for about three or four hours, I could see the space when a really good Aikido master teaches mm -hmm. you they are absolutely quiet oh. and they're just taking the energies of the universe and playing with them my teacher's teacher deals with people coming at him so that they never get to touch him at all mm -hmm. and he always just moves their energy he takes mm -hmm. their mind and moves them in any way and i saw that they it's just getting in harmony with what is it's getting mm -hmm. yourself out of the way you know many years ago when i was going to art school i went to the first dojo in los angeles yeah and I was so impressed with what Aikido represented that I felt that it should be incorporated into the curriculum at art school. Right. And uh, so here, uh, I brought my teacher to, uh, I was going to art center then, and uh, naturally everybody saw the relationship to how you draw and paint. Yeah, of, course. of course. When it comes from the key. Of or, course. You know, or whether it's come, coming yes. from a tight wrist. Yeah. And it was uh, very natural. Before I got thrown out of Harvard, mm -hmm. I was in the School of Education at Harvard also, one of my joint appointments. And I was doing a project at the uh, Lexington School Systems in junior high school. I brought my Aikido teachers, uh, my, I was studying karate then, mm -hmm. brought my karate teachers in and we divided the men so that half of them were doing baseball and football and stuff and half of them were studying karate. Mm -hmm. And we were checking their grades and all kinds of things. Because in order to do karate well, or any of the Eastern inner martial arts, you have to develop that quiet center. And that makes you more effective in anything you're going to do. And it's very different from a competitive sport. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, I never got the results because I got thrown out, so... <laughs> I assume it worked. <laughs> but you're the most famous uh, graduate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a bad guy. And then I've learned that if you, you know, one to me is fame and shame. I yes. didn't know that, but I sure learned it. <laughs> I learned it. It's far out, you know, to be uh, infamous. Mm -hmm. you know, he's the one that takes drugs, and he got thrown out of Harvard, and they said he was a liar and all kinds of things. And then just wait. Like two years ago, I gave an invited address at the APA, and they threw me out in 1964. And so it's as if you sort of wait long enough, and the whole thing comes around. If you're... <laughs> You see, there's fame, there's shame. Ah, uh, so. Yeah. Then you try loss and gain. <laughs> then when you really hip, you try pleasure and pain. That's a big one. That's a good one. Yeah. Then you're ready for life and death. Till mm. you're right here. Ah, uh, pleasure. Ah, uh, pain. Ah, uh, so. 
Did, did, did cancer, all that stuff, take you into any of that space? Oh, yes. So that you could just say, what is, is? I, I don't hang on to it, you know. And who does? I get glimmers of it. Yeah. And I get glimmers of the possibility of welcoming it. If it's to be. Of course. That is very peaceful. Um, Maharaji, my guru, uh, at one point he was sitting there and there were a group of people around and, and uh, he said, um, and a, a, the servant of one of his old devotees rushed in and before he could say anything, Maharaji says, I know that so-and-so had a heart attack and he's calling for me, but I'm not going to go. And they all said, oh, go and go. If he, and the servant said, yes, he did just have a heart attack and he, they, they told me to come and get you because he's dying. Mm -hmm. No, and then he picked up a banana, Maharaj, and he says, here, give him this, he'll be all right. Well, in India, when a guru gives a piece of fruit, I mean, if you're a 90-year-old woman and you want to have a son, you get a mango, and nine months later, you got it. You know? <laughs> it doesn't matter if you have uh, all your ovaries gone, nothing, doesn't matter. So they took the banana, they rush home, they mash it up, and they feed it to the guy, he takes the last bite, and he dies. Now, that's a bad story to tell about your guru, mm -hmm. in one level. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's, it's absolutely exquisite. Because mm -hmm. all he said was he'll be all right. See, it depends on where you're looking from. Right, right. Which way healing goes with people. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that doctors and nurses burn out a lot because they're attached to the fact that their patients shouldn't die. Mm -hmm. It's like saying fall shouldn't come. Or winter should, I mean, that's absurd. You know, it's like when you pitch yourself against the Tao, of course you're gonna burn out. Until you say, look, I will do my best as a healing agent. And then what happens, happens in the way of things. See, mm -hmm. then suddenly there's peace in the way you do it. Otherwise, if you're attached to the fruits of your efforts like that, there's no way you're not going to have to close your heart down because you can't handle losing so much. Because if you do lose, people do die. Mm -hmm. And doctors, it screws up their family life, their relation with their kids. I mean, it burns them out terribly. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's something I learned in India about people doing the Dharma or doing their way. Mm -hmm. Want to hear one beautiful story? Can I? Mm, yeah. uh, there was this doctor um, who was working in the smallpox eradication program in India. And he was kind of a civil liberties kind of doctor, you know, Berkeley from the 60s type mm -hmm. doctor. And he found himself part of a. The, that there was a village. They went down to a very few villages that still had smallpox. And what they do is they go in and they vaccinate everybody in the village. And if you didn't, somebody carrying it might go to a railway station and 500 people would get it, you know, and then it would go to 500 villages and they'd lose the whole game again. Mm -hmm. And it turned out smallpox is the only thing we've ever eradicated off the world, you know, one end of illness by our human ingenuity and, mm -hmm. and science. So uh, there was a village in which they thought that smallpox was the gift of God and that to eradicate it was against the will of God. And they had a case of smallpox there. And Larry found himself part of a midnight raid on the city to force them to be vaccinated. I mean, because he, he looked at the pox and the death and the blindness, and he said, well, I'm just going to make a moral decision to override this, right? So they broke down the door of the chief's house, wrestled him to the ground, inoculated him, vaccinated him, the wife bit the doctor when they were wrestling her to the ground. The kids and all the rest of the villager are around the house watching to see what's going to happen. It's all done. This silence. The old man, the leader, gets up. He walks out to his garden. And there's one squash in the little truck garden. And he picks the squash and he brings it in. And he hands it to the chief doctor. 
Larry can't figure out what this is about. So he asked the translator, and the, the chief says, it was our belief that smallpox was the will of God. I did what I could to protect what I think is the Dharma. Right? It is your belief that smallpox, that vaccination is the will of God. You did your Dharma. There were many of you, there are few of us, no shame. Now you are a guest in my home. I'm sorry I don't have more to offer you. Oh. That's the place from which social action comes. Mm. See, that's what I've been doing at, in the anti-nuclear rallies. Saying to people, nuclear energy is off the wall. I mean, absolutely off the wall. It's, it's, it's not conscious behavior. And it's coming out of an intuitive sense in people that it's got to change, that we've got to change. And it can come from a place not of anger and not just doing your dharma, doing your thing. Well, I, I certainly agree with that. You're on your way to Hawaii? No? Yeah. I'm always on my way somewhere. <laughs> wandering side. And I would like to put... Oh, our preparation for Hawaii. Dear preparation uh, for Hawaii. And thank you for being here. Thank you, I dear heart. Very much thank you, dear heart. heart. You always make me feel this so... This is nice enough, a fun form to meet in, isn't it? <laughs> Since you won't be going, but you'll be going in my heart. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate all the support for the Foundation and for Ramdas's work, and we hope that you will continue that support. You can go to ramdas.org and click on the Donate Now button and follow the prompts. Thank you.